Bird, and then after that, Fellowship Hall. We'll go there for the birthdays of February and celebrate you older folks. Those rest of us don't have those anymore, so we're younger. But anyway, we'll celebrate your birthday if you had one in February or are going to. This morning, Romans 5, we'll begin verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. This morning I speak to you on access to God. Today we address in this service, in this message, from this text of Scripture, what I believe is to be one of the great truths for every Bible-believing Christian. It is access to God. Access to God. You see, we pretty much take that for granted. We, we shouldn't, but we pretty much just take it for granted that we have access to God. But I would tell you that it has not always been so. As the message goes on, you'll be able to see that. But first, before we go to that point of truth and deal with that, let me first acknowledge that everything written in the Bible is not for everybody. And that's another way of saying that part of the ideal of rightly dividing the truth or cutting it straight is that there are some things written in the Bible that are written to believers and some things written in the Scripture for non-believers. And consequently, part of the pastor's job and any Bible teacher's job is to sort that out. Which is which? Who is this to? Who is it written from? Who is it written to? And what's its point and what's its purpose? When you come to this text of Scripture, some people would say, well, this means everybody. 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 Everybody has access to God. That's not uh, true because various truths of the passage that's said already in cement, as it were, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith. Whatever else is to follow, whatever benefits are to be explained are based upon the fact this person, these people, have been justified by faith. So if you're not justified by faith, what's to follow? You do not have the privilege or the benefit of possessing. And so verse 2, by whom also we have access, is attached to the fact I'm justified by faith. So the issue before we begin would be, are you justified by faith? Has there been a time in your life where you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? If you haven't, then this is not to you. Some people come to this text and they like someone who tries to cash a check in a bank where they have no money. You can't do that. If you do not know Christ, you do not have access to the Father. And you do not have access by grace into this grace wherein he speaks of these believers as standing. It's like the mailman delivering mail to you. As I talked to my mailman yesterday briefly, and he may deliver a birth announcement of a family that you have no relationship to. And you read it with no understanding and no appreciation for what it says, and you have no jubilation to rejoice with these people who have this fact of life brought to their attention, that is, a newborn baby. Reason. It's delivered to the wrong address. 
You don't know these people. You have no relationship to them, and therefore you have no interest in their birth announcement. That's like this is. Some people who we've heard recently claim Romans chapter 5, verse number 2. And they said, my mother and dad taught me this verse when I was a kid. And yet when you ask, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? The answer is no. No, I don't think I need one. I have access to God anyway. I beg to differ, and the text itself would not allow such a theology interpretation. Some things in the Bible are written to lost people, people who have had a physical but no spiritual birth. And that is to say, basically, there's one truth to which the Bible addresses itself to those people, and that is the offer of salvation free and clear. That's the message to lost people. If you're here in this service and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the message the Bible brings to you is not to tell you that you can have access to the Father. It's a message of salvation by grace, that someone has paid your sin debt. And now because Christ has paid your sin debt by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have salvation and you can have access to the Father. But you don't have it before that. Much of the Bible is written to those people who have received that gift of salvation and who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that text of Scripture, Romans 5, that fits into that context. Those people who have trusted Christ as Savior, these are the people who have access by faith into this grace. Sinners do not have access by faith into this grace wherein we who know the Lord stand. The verse 1, as it speaks about, we have, and you ought to underline that in your text. Verse 1, we have peace with God if you've been justified by faith. And then in verse number 2, what else you have? Verse number 2, by whom we have this access. I would call your attention first off in verse number 2 as it does in verse number 1. It tells you on who's back, if you please, we get this privilege. For instance, in verse 1, we have or been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1 says. But verse number 2, it says, by whom also, this person in verse 1, through whom we have this uh, peace with God, we also have this access. And that's important to note. So by Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And by Jesus Christ, we have this access. You don't have this access apart from your relationship to Jesus Christ. This verse is a brother verse, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. Romans 5, 2 is a parallel to that truth. Nobody gets to the Father apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and coming with him. We do not earn it. We do not deserve it. But by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we have it. And this morning, you can rejoice in that. I would call your attention to the little word access, A-C-C-E-S-S. It's an important word. Your dictionary, if you go to a secular's dictionary, you'll look under this word and you'll find it to be defined as permission, liberty, or ability to enter, approach, or communicate with. That's what it means in a common dictionary. The word is used often in our present society. I've run across it just in the last two or three weeks more with more rapidity. It's a word that I ran across in a newspaper article when it talked about a new program coming on television. It was called Access Hollywood. Now, who would want access to Hollywood? That's beyond me. But the fact is, that's what it was called, Access Hollywood. There's another one that Channel 8 TV, or Wish TV is doing. They're doing a series or a piece on coaches' access. And it says it's going to take the viewer in behind closed practices with the coaches of Indiana. Access. If there's a, another thing that you who have computers and work computers, to some degree, to get 
uh, you know, get that thing working properly, you may have to have, and to get full access, you may have to password, and you may have to enter that word in in order for the computer to cooperate with you to give you what you want to do with it. Many people want to get to the President of the United States. They want access to the President, but it's almost impossible for common folks to have access to the President of the United States. doesn't matter that you're a citizen of the United States of America. You can't have access to the President of the United States. It just doesn't work that way. What's interesting, this word access is only used three times in the whole of the New Testament. Only three times. When you look those three times up as I did, you'll find one is right here. Romans 5, verse number 2, we have access. But the other two fall from the pen of the Apostle Paul likewise. They're found in two other places. I'll share them with you. They're very simply found Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 18. Ephesians 2 and 18 says, For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Ephesians 2, 18. You ought to keep that one before you. Paul wrote that and he says, For through him, that's Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Verse number 12 of chapter 3 of Ephesians says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Those two verses, Ephesians 2.18 and Ephesians 3.12, in their context are talking about prayer and entering into God's presence. So the fact of the matter is, back over here in Romans 5 and verse number 2, when it says, By whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, what obvious in what is obvious here, the access that Paul's talking about in Romans 5.2 is access into this grace. What is this grace? This grace is justification by faith. That's what he's talking about. We have access into this grace, this justification by faith. But what Ephesians 2, verse 12, or verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 12 are talking about access, is talking about prayer coming into God's presence. So let me tell you something. It is sort of an interlocking truth. If you're going to have a prayer life, you're going to have to have an access life. And to get an access life, you're going to have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So it simply boils down to this fact. You cannot pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and get anywhere unless, first of all, you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. He gives you access. Access into the grace of justification by faith, which gives you access into the Father's throne room and with the Father himself. There's a verse that I believe Paul wrote. That may be up for debate. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. I say to you, it should be noted that our Lord, while on earth, demonstrated something that every one of our Catholic friends need to get a grip on. And that's a very simple thing, that Mary, his mother, was not an approachable route to him. I mean by that, this verse, John chapter 2, verse 4, is in the setting where they were running and having a wedding, if you recall, in Cana. And in this wedding, they had this great wine, this fruit of the vine that was being served to people. And they ran out. Mary was there, the Bible says, along with his disciples. When they ran out of this wine, the fact is that they contacted Mary and said, hey, we're out of wine. Could you go speak to the Lord and see if he couldn't work this problem? And evidently, Mary said, I think I, I think I can do that. And so Mary comes to our Lord. John chapter 2, verse 4 is what our Lord said. Jesus said unto her, he said, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. 
Now, does that sound like a, 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 a son talking to his mother? Not really. I'll assure you one thing. I never told my mother, woman. If I had, I'd been picking myself up off the floor after I had been hit across the mouth. That's not the way you address your mother. What he was teaching and had to teach the truth, and he teaches it again and again through the New Testament, is that when this case and this life, this relationships that are cultivated, created in this life, are not the basis by which you have access to the Father through the Son. He did it again. Let me illustrate it more clearly. This is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 12. Let me turn to this one, a little longer passage. Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, look at verse number 47. Matthew 12, 47. Similar circumstance. While he was... While he yet talked to the people, verse 46 says, Behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. And in verse 47, Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. Now get this, verse 50 for whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let me tell you what he was teaching. The same thing that he taught in John chapter 2, he teaches here in Matthew chapter 12. He is saying that he could not be approached on the ground of any earthly tie. Mary has no access to the Father any more than you or I do except the fact she has trusted Jesus Christ, believed on Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. Verse number 50 makes it clear that it is this first step in doing the will of the Father and that first step of doing the will of the Father is to believe on the Son, that He is the Savior of the world. If you don't get that, you don't get access to the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ was saying, uh, I, she, she's my mother, and I respect the fact that in an earthly setting she is, but she'd have no impact on what my decisions would be in regard to giving her those things she wishes. And he's implicating and illustrating and demonstrating, as it were, a spiritual truth that will keep on and on and on for all eternity. We should remember that uh, the Jewish man, when you start talking about access to God with him, he thought and feared it. It was a fearful thing for a, for a godly Jewish man to think about access to God. Let me give you a simple illustration. This one comes in Exodus chapter number 19. In the setting there in Exodus 19 is the giving of the law. And it is that Moses is going to go up and get the law and so forth. Well, two verses out of Exodus 19 read. Verse 20 says, And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down and charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Just to look upon the Lord meant certain death, an absolute death. And so to the Jewish man and Jewish woman, listen to me, God was unapproachable. God was unapproachable. You couldn't get to God. That was an impossibility. And, and the fact is, these verses and many others that uh, uh, substantiate that point are, are sprinkled through the Old Testament. God was unapproachable. 
So to the Jewish man, when you start talking about access to God, as Paul is over here in Romans chapter 5, he was looking a little funny. You say, wait a minute. You know what you're talking about here? The only people who ever saw God died. The only people who ever got into God's presence died. It was very exception. That exception was in the worship and in the temple and the tabernacle. But here's how that worked. We're told, and one historian writes it out, and I think in a way that beats anything I could do, so let me just give you what he gives. He says, we're told in the Jewish temple there were walls, and of course we don't mean brick walls or block walls or rock walls. We're talking about mostly walls that were designated in regard to fabrics. But he said, in the temple of the tabernacle there were walls designed to protect the approach of man to God. If you went to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem at the time of Christ, you would have been confronted with a wall. That wall divided the courtyard of the Gentiles from what was just beyond. And that wall meant just what it said. No Gentile could go beyond it, and the penalty of his doing so was absolute death. The Jews could go further, but they would come to another wall. And this wall divided the courtyard of the women... From the courtyard of the men. Here, all Jewish women would have to stop. They could go no further except under the penalty of death. Beyond that wall stood another wall. And past it, only Jewish men who were priests could go. And they performed the sacrifices and entered the holy place. But there was one more barrier. And that one barrier was to the most holy place. The great curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And beyond that barrier, only one person could ever go. And that was the high priest who could enter only once a year. And that was on the day of atonement to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Now this elaborate system, and by the way, this is not dreamed up. This is biblical truth. But this elaborate system that is under God's auspices taught very clearly a biblical truth. And that biblical truth was that God could be approached but only through the mediation of a priest on the basis of blood. If you're going to get to God, you're going to have to have a representative and you're going to have to have that representative come with blood or he's not going to get to the Father. That's what all that taught. There's a passage Paul brought out, and he brought it out vividly about this business of how we're alienated or separated, as it were, from God. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 14. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, he said, For he is our peace, talking about the Lord Jesus, who hath made both one, hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him, the Lord Jesus, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. That's an exciting thing to me. As the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was his flesh that was representative and demonstrated by, by that, that, back, that curtain that hung between the Holy of Holies and the holy place. 
And the fact of the matter in Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 says that when Christ died, he forever removed that wall. Verse 51, chapter 27 of Matthew says, Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. That was a demonstration of a vivid form that God was saying, From now on, there will be no barrier between me and mankind. For the whole idea is, Christ who died on the cross opened that way, and it is a matter that he was saying, Anybody who comes believing on Christ, my son, can have access now unto the Father. And again, I repeat, it's not by human merit. It's not by our deserts. It is by the grace and mercy of God that we can get there. There's something else in our verse in, in Romans chapter 5. I Note this phrase there, if you would. Romans chapter 5, verse number 2, by whom also we have access, he says, by faith into this grace, and this grace, of course, again, is justification by faith, and that justification by faith gives us access to the Father in prayer. Wherein we stand. I want you to see that. Wherein we stand. We have access by faith into this grace. Wherein we stand. You know, all through the scripture, there's a, this phrase that has always intrigued me and excited me. Um, the Christian life is one that we're not going and coming into grace. We stand in it. I told you chapter 5 is the most, I think, distinct chapter in the Bible teaching eternal security. Every turn you make in Romans 5, there's some kind of solidifying statement about our security. And there's, this is another one of them. We have access to the Father. You think you could have access to the Father, the creator of the universe, and then one day God cut that off and say, No more. You snuck in here, and, and, and I'm never going to let you come back again. You can't do that. You, you think for a moment that God is so flighty that he would have such an idea that he'd let people trick him into having a relationship for a while and then cut him off? I don't think so. But also beyond that, this very fact that it is this grace wherein we stand, we do not fluctuate. We do not go from one side to the other. This is a grace wherein we stand. We stand in it. And this word stand by a biblical definition means to abide therein, to continue therein, to be fully established. That's what it means. That doesn't sound like something that you can lose. That doesn't sound like something you can have on Sunday and lose on Monday. This is a grace wherein we stand. We are continuously standing in this grace. There is nothing wishy-washy, nothing in the Christian life that would be classified as wishy-washy. There is no such thing as a not certain salvation. Ours is a no-so salvation. When I think about this word stand, there are two or three verses that come to mind. And for some reasons that would not necessarily be revealed. But the fact is, Psalm 130 in verse number 3, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities... O Lord, who shall stand? Who shall stand? I think of that verse every time I read the word stand. Then there's Job 41, verse 10. He said, None is so fierce that they dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before him? Let me tell you who can. Those people who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can stand before the Father. Not in their own merit and not on their own good. They stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we can stand. You have a right to stand, to come into, have access to the Father and stand as it were there. And you don't stand there gloating and boasting and bragging and being cocky and arrogant. You come in there knowing that you have what you have by the good grace of God. 
Man doesn't have a leg to stand on when it comes to defending his own sinful action and his behavior. The only way to stand before God is by His grace. And that is in this text, verse 2, that that's wherein we stand. We stand in disgrace and we stand there knowing that Jesus Christ paid our sin debt and He has made it possible for us to be robed in the righteousness of Christ so we can enter into the very presence of our Heavenly Father. There's something else in the verse, and it too lends itself to eternal security and maybe more than all the other things. Verse 2, by whom also, and that by whom is Jesus Christ, by Christ we have access by faith into this grace, which is justification by faith, wherein we stand. We're not wishy-washy. We're not up and down and in and out. We stand. And then this last thing in verse number 2, which we'll address today. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is one of those verse phrases that if you're not careful, you read it and you just skip over it because it just really doesn't mean anything at the moment. Let me tell you something that what this phrase means in verse number 2 should give you some of the greatest confidence of your Christian faith. Did you hear that? These little words at the end of verse number 2, And rejoice in hope of the glory of God ought to give you some of the greatest confidence of your Christian life. You see, first of all, you need to understand, and I think we do, what it says in verse 2 is rejoice. We know what it is to rejoice. When something good comes, we rejoice. We have this joy that sort of flows over and flows out of us. We're excited about this. This is wonderful. Well, let me tell you, whatever it is that's following, he says, you ought to rejoice about this. Well, the first thing I find out, if, if I'm supposed to rejoice about it, I need to know what it is I'm rejoicing about. But yet many people read that phrase and just go by it and never think another thing about it. Say, well, we rejoice in the glory of God. Well, what is that? What does that mean? What is that? Why should I rejoice in the glory of God? What is it? Let me tell you what it is, and it's exciting. Take it word for word and it's best understood. First off, understand the word hope in verse number two is not as your secular dictionary will define it. The word in the secular dictionary will define hope as a desire with some expectation to obtain. That's not a biblical concept. That's not a biblical definition of the, of the Greek word that's used here. The Bible word for hope is and could be very easily translated with the word certainty. Certainty. Rejoice in certainty of the glory of God. Rejoice in the certainty, the absolute, unequivocal, undoubtful, secured glory of God. That's what you're rejoicing in. And you're rejoicing in it by virtue of that. I was reading Hebrews 6 this week and it says, Hebrews 6 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil. I was thinking in the context of that, talking about entering into the veil, of course, being torn, the death of Christ on the cross and what it opened up to us. But I was thinking about the, the security of that verse, the anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. Well, let me tell you, that's the same kind of hope that is written about in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 2. This hope is an absolute, unequivocal thing. First off, understand this simple truth. Salvation... From start to finish is the work of God. Don't ever get away from that. You know why people doubt their salvation? You know why people begin to think you can lose it? Because they think they had something to do with it. And they know themselves. 
They know they're frail. They know they fail. They know they sin. And they say, man, if my salvation depends on me, I am in a heap of trouble. And you're a heap of truth. You're absolutely right. If you believe that your salvation depends on you keeping it, you're in big trouble. But if you believe that salvation is from start to finish the work of Christ and God, it's as secure as it can get. I would ask you a simple question to begin with. Do you think God ever started anything that he did not finish? Do you think God ever got started on a job and said, Hey, this is too hard. I ain't going to finish this grief. Even me as God, I can't finish this. I'm not going to. You think? If you do, you're foolish. We have a God that's perfect in every respect. He never tackled anything that he did not finish, and he did not finish perfectly. That means that my salvation, because it's his from start to finish, my salvation is going to be finished perfectly. That's what Romans 5, 2 is saying. We rejoice in the certainty of the glory of God. What is this business of the, of the glory of God? The second point is that not only from start to finish God did it, but the second point to keep on mind is that he will finish totally. Let me take you to a text. It's over from chapter 5, just a few pages. It is Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28. Romans eight twenty-eight. we know it by heart, but let me read the context, including verse 29 and 30. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them are the called according to his purpose. Next week we will use that verse as we continue Romans 5, 3. And that verse will play an important role in what we'll talk about. But verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now let me stop there for just a moment. The point about you getting saved is He's conforming you to the image of His Son. The most important thing in your life is, from God's perspective, to conform you to the image of His Son. The most important thing in your life is God conforming you to the image of His Son. When you get to heaven, you're going to be conformed to the image of His Son. What He's working on you now is to conform you to the image of your Son. Everything in your life that does not conform to the image of God's Son over which you have something to do, you need to get rid of. Because that's what He's working on. And uh, does He need to wake up one day and say, Hello, this is what I'm doing. Why are you working against me? Why do you keep doing your thing? Why not do my thing? I want to conform you to the image of my son. That's what I'm working toward. That's what you're going to be. When you get home to glory, you're going to be the expressed image of my son. You cannot keep going your way and get my job done. And may I tell you, that's the problem with Christianity today. That's the problem with many of our Baptist churches. We're doing our thing and we're not even thinking of his thing. His thing is to be and make us conform to the image of his son that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now watch verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also, tell me, glorified. Did you know, my friend, that it is a process through which God has taken you from the calling, justification, etc., etc., and the ultimate end is what? Glorified. That's what this verse in Romans chapter 5 is saying. Rejoice in this fact. He who started this thing is going to finish this thing all the way down to glorification. You are going to become like my son. 
And I will not quit until you get the glory and you're just like him. That's what he says. Rejoice about it. That means I'm not going to always be the way I am. And I'm not going to always be fighting and fussing with my flesh. What this verse of Scripture, as a believer, we can and should rejoice because we have a divinely secured, certain hope that God's ultimate work on our behalf will be absolutely, unequivocally accomplished. And that is, I'll be like Christ. I will be like Christ. And all this mess on which we deal day to day will be all over. I read the verse and... I read it just uh, yesterday, I believe, I took my Bible out and I added this verse to my text and message. It's in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 10. For it became him, Jesus Christ, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. His whole point was to bring many sons to glory. To take them from when he found them, they were lost, hell-bound sinners, and he saved them, he justified them, and he transformed them in this life as much as we allowed him to by sanctification and our cooperation with him. And then when we died and we entered into his presence, or when he comes, we'll be glorified. And what this text of Scripture is saying, that is the absolute fact. He is absolutely going to do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord. Everybody in this room who's been here very long knows that when you talk about changing and being moved from glory to glory, it means growing in grace. It means changing from what you are to what you ought to be. Well, how does this happen? He says, well, when we look into his image, where do we get that? From the revelation of himself in the scriptures. When we hear Bible teaching, when we hear Bible preaching and we see Christ and we say, I'm not like that. We say, well, we need to change. And the Spirit convicts us of that change. And we make that change. And the process of sanctification is taking place. What's his point? His point is to get you ready to be glorified like to his Son and his image. That's what he's working on. That's what the whole point of this is. It's not for you and me to look good and great and wonderful. It's for you and me to look like, live like, and act like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's working on. And he wants you to cooperate with him now. And as I said, jokingly, when people die, some folks, it's going to take a long time to twinkle in that eye to change them. You know, we're going to be so unlike what he wants us to be because we paid no attention to his word. We paid no attention to changes. Some of us have almost like a wooden block head. You know, we, we just don't get it. We keep doing it our way. We keep doing our thing. And he keeps saying, I'm working on you to change you into my son's image. And I'm saying to you that's, Philippians chapter 1, being confident of this, and you ought to memorize this if you're prone to allow the devil to tempt you to doubt your salvation. You ought to memorize this. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which began and hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, and you get this down in your heart deep, and you keep it there. God does not save you and me and then cross his fingers and hope we make it. He does not somehow sit back and say, boy, I hope that kid makes this. I hope that lady hangs on. I hope they can hang in there. and I hope they just, boy, endure. 
That'd be a funny God that saves somebody and then turn them loose in a world like we're in and just say, I hope for the best for these guys. You forgive me, but sometimes that's what we do to our new converts. We as believers sometimes see them come to faith in Christ and then we just say, well, now you're on your own, kid. Hope you make it. You know, hope you learn all I've learned in the years I did, even though I had a lot of mentors and teachers and tutors in the faith. I, I, I hope you catch on. And if you don't, you know, let me tell you something. Some Christian people are sitting this morning in their homes sulking in the defeat of the crisis of life. Because somehow when they trusted Christ or made profession of faith, nobody came alongside of it and said, look, let me tell you what's ahead of you. Let me tell you what Christ is doing in your life. And next week when we come to Romans chapter 5 and verse number 3, and we look at this passage of Scripture, and, and I'm excited about preaching it to you, so let me read the verse. In verse 3, and not only so... That's an interesting phrase that will tie us back to verses 1 and 2. But something else, he says, here's what you can be sure of your salvation by. You have peace with God, sure, that'll give you assurance of salvation. You have access to the Father, that'll give you assurance of salvation. We stand in this grace, that'll give you assurance of your salvation. We have this, this, this thing where to rejoice in the certainty of God bringing us to glory. Yes, you can rejoice in that. That's eternal security. Then you come to verse number 3. But not only so, but we rejoice in tribulations. Say what? Eternal security and your certainty of your salvation can be tied as clearly as peace with God and access to the Father is to your being able to rejoice in tribulation. When I read that, I must tell you, I put my Bible back and shoved it back from my seat and my desk there in the office. And I thought about that for a moment. And I said, what? And I spent much time wrestling with this text of Scripture. But as I wrestled with it, I am convinced that God gave me a piece about the truth in it. And with that, we'll share next week. But I'm telling you, there's a security in knowing that God, He's committed Himself to us and He saved us with a commitment to us that we will arrive as sons in glory and we will be like the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's never left a work undone and He's not going to start with us. It's interesting that even in 1 John chapter 3, in verse number 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. It means it's not presently aware. We're not presently aware of all this is going to take us and all of what we're going to be. We can't even, as it were, it hadn't even entered into your mind how we, in the flesh as we are, can be like Christ. How can that be? It hadn't even entered your mind. It is not appear yet. But I'll tell you something, he says. We know. That's an, a guaranteed word. That's an assurance word. This we know. We don't know how all that's going to have to happen. And we don't know all the transformation of grace that's going to yet take place. But this we do know. That when he shall appear, we shall be like him. So you, my friend, can mark that down, underline it, and red tuck it in your pocket and hang on to it for life because that means that God is saying, I don't care where you are in Christian life. If you're truly saved by the grace of God, there'll be a day when you're going to be changed into the glory of the Son of God. And you can rest in that. And remind yourself of Philippians 1, 6, that he that begun a good work in you promises, commits to, by the integrity of his own name, that he'll finish what he has started. And I say to you, for that reason, nobody, but nobody, ought to ever doubt their salvation. 
Salvation ought not be doubted on the end concerning what God commits to those who trust Christ. The only doubt there would ever be in salvation, have I truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I holding on to Christ and something else to save me? Or am I holding on, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone to save me? You know, the further down the road I get in the ministry, the more aware I am that there are people who say they've trusted Christ and Christ alone. But then when you come to them and say, if you died right where you're sitting, do you know you'd go to heaven? They say, well, I hope so. I hope so. Now, let me ask you a question. How can you hope with God speaking? You, you know, you believe on me as Savior and my son is Savior that, I, that died on the cross. You can be absolutely certain and sure. Then you ask, are you sure you're going to heaven? Well, I hope so. What's that say to God? It says simply, I don't believe you. I hope you're right, but you may be wrong. Unless they use hope with the same context of the biblical definition, means certainty. Most folks don't think that way. We use the word hope with the idea of an expectation that might, I repeat, might come to be. But I'm here to tell you that in regard to salvation, when a person has truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, according to the Scriptures, there ought not be any hope-so salvation in a human, secular sense of the word for anybody here in the New Life Baptist Church. You need to be absolutely sure that there came a time in your life where you realized you were a sinner and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you, me, and everybody else. And believe what Paul wrote in Romans later, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. He's not asking you to believe everything that's in the Bible and all the details and explain every jot and tittle of it. That's not what he's asking. He's asking you to believe what he said about you being a sinner and his son being a savior of sinners. When you embrace that truth, you can have salvation free and clear. And with that salvation free and clear comes an eternal security that you'll never get anywhere else with any other offer. God's word is absolutely true. Think of it in this way. Romans 5, verse number 2, and verse 1 for that matter. Peace with God. That takes care of my past. Access to God. That takes care of my present. Then hope of the glory of God. That takes care of my future. You can't get any more secure than that verse of Scripture in that passage. The issue is those three truths belong to people. That verse 1 says, I've been justified by faith. So the catch, and the only one in the text, is have you been justified? And I don't mean justifying yourself, as you know. I mean, have you come to faith in Christ, believed on Him as He justified you? As He declared you justified? If not, then may I urge you, encourage you, and exhort you, and plead with you. At this morning, you simply, as we sing the invitation song... You leave your pew and walk down this aisle and meet me here and I'll ask you a simple question. Why are you coming? You can state it straight up. I'm coming to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I want to be saved. And I can assure you on the authority of God's Word, if you come with that desire of heart, no man has come to Father apart from the Lord Jesus and nobody has come to Him that He's ever turned away who came seeking. So if you come... He'll receive you. And if you come through the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll accept you. And that's all He asks. 
if you're a believer here this morning and maybe you've wrestled and had some questions about your own salvation and the security of it, let me encourage you to read and read faithfully these first five verses of Romans chapter 5 and get acquainted with them and let the truth that is here in its security seek and soak and saturate your heart every single day. You see, the devil delights in nothing more than to get people to keep them lost. The devil blinds the minds of those who might believe by keeping the gospel unperceptible about them. But then after a person trusts Christ as Savior, he works very hard so he can make you useless in the cause of Christ. And he can do that by causing you to be uncertain about your own salvation. If he can get you to believe and question your own salvation, it would be unlikely, yea, verily, it would be most probable that you would never mention your salvation to anybody else. Fearing you might have to answer questions. You might have to explain it, and you couldn't, and so therefore you keep your mouth shut. Let me tell you something. The devil delights in that. The devil has closed a lot of mouths that should be speaking. Silence is not golden. It's most often just plain yellow. And it often grows out of the insecurity of what I'm discussing. The less secure I am in my salvation, the less likely I am to talk to people about it. And the more secure you are in it, the more often you will mention the fact that you've been saved by the grace of God. God did it from start to finish, and He will finish that which He started. Philippians 1.6 gives me a guarantee. Do you know Christ as Savior? Have you believed on Him and Him alone as your personal Savior? As a Christian, do you doubt your salvation? Do you have spells where you wonder, you question, am I going to heaven? Let me tell you something, there's no need for that. It's anxiety brought about by the lie that the devil himself would perpetrate. And he wants you to doubt. He wants you to stand in this grace like you stand on shallow ice on a lake, wondering if you take the next step, you'll fall through. The great news is the grace wherein we stand is secure because it's what God did for us, not what we do for Him. May God add His blessing to His Word. Our Father in, our, in heaven, thank You so very much for the great grace wherein we stand. This justification by faith. It's nothing like anything that we could ever have dreamed up or imagined. It comes from Your good hand and it comes under Your direction and Your auspices. And this morning we stand secure in it. We stand in this grace. We do not wobble, we do not waver, we do not stumble, we stand in this grace because it's of your work and it's a position thing to which we stand. So this morning I pray, Father, for those who may be in our fellowship in the service this morning who have never believed on you as personal Savior. Oh, how I want for them the security that your word brings us on this great truth and the great privilege we have, the access we have, Father, to you to come into your presence at the end of a morning worship service or the beginning of a morning worship service or the beginning of a Sunday school class or the beginning of the Sunday school preliminaries or the beginning of the evening service or the evening service as it closes or, or the evening meal as we sit down to eat and we come into your presence to thank you for it or as we face a challenge during the course of the day and we need to come to you and Father, thank you for the access that we have into your presence. At any moment, at any time, because of what Jesus Christ did for us. How grateful we are for that. And please, Father, please help us never to take it for granted. It was not always so. It's such a blessing that we do not have to have a, 
a whole tribe of priests who represent us and offer sacrifices for us. All those days are past. Our sacrifice was complete in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him as the perfect Lamb of God. And all the barriers have been removed. There remains now only one mediator between man and God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. He is our peace. And we have peace with Thee and access to Thee. What more could we ask? And yet there's more. We have your guarantee that what you began, you will finish. And the fact is that we can actually now rejoice in what will be because it's so certain. And for that, we give you the glory and we give you the praise. We can treat it as if it is a present possession, even though it presently is a promise. But the good news, you never break one, you never have, and you never will. Your word is as good as your name, and it is forever true. I pray you speak to our hearts and help this to be more than just another sermon, another Bible lesson. Help it to be a reality that sets up in our hearts like nothing else ever has. And may we gain a security in our faith in Jesus Christ that would propel us into a new level of glory to glory and new spiritual maturity like we'd never known. How we thank you and we praise you for your word. Make it dwell deep in our hearts. Help us now to become practitioners of it. And Father, for the man, woman, boy, or girl who may yet be here who is without thee, please bring them to yourself. It is beyond us now to convert people. That is a work of your grace and your spirit and your word. So we ask you to do a work that we cannot. And we know you do all things well and will this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? 282 in your hymn book. We sing the first stanza of the invitation. If God has spoken to your heart about your salvation, we invite you to come and uh, assure you someone will take a Bible and show you how you can be saved and know Christ. If you need to come for believer's baptism, you've been saved, but desire baptism, we'd be glad to talk with you about setting that up and scheduling that so you can be in complete obedience to the Lord about it. If your heart has been impressed in the direction of the Lord to join fellowship with the New Life Baptist Church and you've prayed about that, thought this is God's will, we'd be glad for you to join with us. We want it to be what God wants for you. Then you'll be happy and we will too. Whatever it is that God has said and God has spoken to you in His Spirit through His Word in this place, I just urge you to do it. I just urge you to do it. That's all. Because we're encouraged when God does a work and God finishes it. He always does. May God speak to our hearts as we sing. 282, verse 1. You obey the Lord, would you? Just as I am. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Let's sing verse 2. Verse number 2. <coughs> God has spoken to your heart. Would you come?
bow your heads with me, please. Our Father, we thank you so very much for your goodness and your grace. And we again want to thank you for your word and for the reality that it brings into our heart and the security that it brings to us. When we look into it and we embrace it for what you say and let its interpretation fall to the seeds of our heart, we thank you for bringing that blessed truth to each of us individually. And this morning we thank you again for all the folks who have sat here and listened patiently for this message. And we ask you now to drive the truth that they have heard of your word deep into their hearts. Help every believer here to leave with a new sense of certainty and security of their faith in Jesus Christ and the grace wherein they stand in justification. And help us to also be keenly aware of the high privilege we have of entering into your presence and coming there boldly, bearing our burdens, especially in times of need of help. And Father, I pray too that you'll ever keep before us that your goal for us is that we'll conform to the image of your Son whereas in glory we will be like thee completely. And so I pray, therefore, that you will work a work in our hearts even now to conform us hour by hour, day by day, and week by week, and month by month. Please conform us to your image and help us to cooperate with your word and your spirit in the process. Bless, I pray, as we will return to the evening service, and we look forward to it even now. Bless Brother Brian as he'll open the scriptures to us, prepare his heart, Happen to speak with your power and your blessing. And pray, Father, that you'll give, give each of us a listening ear and an open heart and receptive mind and will. And may we be the better for having come and brought our Bibles and opened them and listened. And pray, Father, you'll move in our hearts and our midst this evening. Bless the invitation and then bless the fellowship to follow the service. Help our fellowship there of one another to be encouraging and enhancing to the whole of our church's bond of love. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for the answer to prayer you brought. Thank you for Mrs. Hunt being back with us. And thank you for the many prayers that have been offered in this place on her behalf. And, Father, for so many others who need our prayers the week that's ahead, we pray again, please minister to their needs. Be with them. Give them a peace that they need for every moment and the grace that it would take to bear up under the load that they're asked to lead. Guide us as we go from this place. Give safety and protection to your people. And do please bring us back again to the service tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.